Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, our great and glorious God, we, we love you, and we want to love you more. Most of us in this room know a lot of right answers about Jesus, about who he was and what he did, and we also might know a lot of important doctrines and theological ideas, but if we are honest, we need to increase our understanding of how valuable Jesus is to us. Move our hearts and our minds this morning so that all things, possessions, pleasures, peoples, pursuits, will pale in comparison to the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. Oh, welcome again, and thank you so much for coming. It's a privilege to open God's word to you. We're going to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. One of the names you heard in the scripture reading this morning was Judas. That name captures our attention just about as much as any name in the history of humanity. I've noticed over the years that some people don't mind naming their child after Jesus. Maybe they don't even know they're naming it after Jesus, but that name is, is in play in terms of being a, a name of a child born these days in some parts of the world. But Judas is not a name that anyone seeks after to name their child. I have a cousin named Jody who married a man named Jim, who I consider to be my cousin. I guess that's a cousin-in-law, but Jim and Jody are my favorite cousins, my closest cousins. They have four kids, Jared, Justin, Josh, and Jenna, and they have a dog named Jesse. <laughs> Somewhere in there, in my early days as a Christian, uh, partly because I was naive and partly I was just poking around, asked them, did you ever consider naming one of your boys Judas? And by the response that they gave me, I've never asked that question again. Um, no, that one's not up for grabs. Amazing that we, we do that. We, we don't have any Judases who attend our church. I have heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, and we have some of those. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think, at a Johnny and Friends retreat, uh, we had a number of Matthews. It just happened that that was the, the week of Matthew. And I said to a couple of them, you know what? You can never have too many Matthews. We don't say that about Judas. You can never have too many Judases. One would be too many. I looked in our directory. We don't have a single person named Judas. We have five Matthews who attend Hope. We have two Marys. And you would be glad if one of those Marys moved in next door, but you wouldn't want Judas living next door. To this day, I've never met anybody named Judas. Well, in our passage of Scripture today, we do have a, um, a series of individuals that are named, and they, they are, I think the, what we can do to understand John 12 a bit better is to compare them and their responses to Jesus. In fact, I think that's what John wants us to do, is to look at um, the various responses to Jesus and then inquire as to how we are responding to Jesus ourselves. 
And one of the contrasts is between Mary, who gave all she had, and Judas, who wanted to receive what he did not have. The contrast of the three responses, I've labeled with three words, kind of a play off of an old movie title. The good, the bad, and the evil. No, I didn't go with the word ugly. The good, the bad, and the evil. And Mary and Judas fall into one of those, and we'll take that apart. I'll just give you a heads up, though, as we get into John chapter 12, Judas at this point in time is not evil. His response is bad. And to be sure, he puts his flawed character on display in John chapter 12, but it's not until John chapter 18 that he betrays the Son of God, and we would call him evil for that. But not in John 12. He's just plain bad. And then we have Mary along with her siblings, and their response is good. So Martha, Mar uh, Lazarus, and Mary, as it appears in order in the Gospel of John chapter 12, their response is good. Judas is bad, and evil would be that group of people that is just simply identified as the chief priests. And that would be the religious leadership at that time. So John describes these three responses with enough detail that we can understand what it meant in the, in the ancient world, and yet at the same time we can draw a good application, a good line of application into our lives today in the modern world. <clears throat> First, I want to take a look at the setting of John chapter 12. We've been humming along through John most, most Sundays. I think we've been in John. But now we, we actually reach a, a, a hinge. John 12 is a transition. John 1 through 11 have been dealing largely with the ministry of the Savior. And John 13 forward is going to deal with the death of the Savior. John 12 sits in between the ministry of the Savior and the death of the Savior. And, it, and I think there are four movements in John chapter 12, and they all somehow speak of the coming death, sacrificial, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and what that does for us is it helps us to understand that the death of Jesus was not an accident. It wasn't a, a series of events that somehow spiraled out of control and bad people won the day. Oh, Jesus had this planned all along. In fact, he has an appointment with the Roman cross and he intends to keep that appointment. And John chapter four makes it very clear that Jesus is the one who's setting the agenda for the rest of the Gospel of John. Really, that'd be for the rest of his life. So four movements, and these movements let us know that the hour has come. And with the events of John 12, he enters his last week of life. We stopped reading at John chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 11. Verse 12 will tell us that that's um, the uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphant ent entry. So at that point in time, Jesus has less than a week to live. So we are about there, we're, we're getting very close to the last week of Jesus' life. <clears throat> now you might, be, um, <clears throat> you might be following along in the Gospel of John and you notice that, wait, 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 wait a minute, the last time I preached on John, it was chapter 10. And so here we are in John chapter 12, and no, you did not take uh, amnesia medicine, so you're You're good. I skipped John 11 on purpose. That's me. I'm saving that for Easter Sunday. 
because John chapter 11 deals with the resurrection of Lazarus. So skipping it for now, I'll just give you 30-second brief, John chapter 11. Here we go. Jesus was told that his friend Lazarus was sick. And by the time he arrived at the house where Lazarus lived, it was too late. Lazarus had been dead for four days. In fact, he was already buried. It is evident from John chapter 11 that Jesus knew this was going to happen. And he wants to put on display one more sign for the Jewish religious leadership, one more irrefutable sign so that he might communicate to them clearly that he is the Son of God. And that last sign was the, the sign of the, uh, the miracle of life. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. <clears throat> so that's the last and greatest sign, the last of the seven that's recorded in the Gospel of John. It's as if Jesus saved his best for the last. Right there, about a week before he died, just two miles away from the religious center of the ancient world, that being Jerusalem, just about seven days before he went to the cross, Jesus made it unmistakably clear, I am the Son of God, here, I beat, I beat death. I have power over death. So in chapter 12, verse uh, 2, we are told that there's a dinner given, and G it was given in Jesus' honor. Do you hear that? Do you see that in verse 2? It just simply reads, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Mary was served and Lazarus is there, etc. But the dinner is given in Jesus' honor. The occasion is just quite simply to celebrate Jesus, who he is and what he has done. I was um, doing just a bit of reading in the area of Middle Eastern hospitality and came to understand that not only is it still a big deal to this day. It was absolutely huge back in the day. But the fact that it was huge back in the day helps us to understand why it's still, still so important to people today. And I came across somebody who is a blogger who writes on food, and this is a chef who writes about Iraqi and Iranian food, and she says this. Hospitality is a bedrock of cultures and countries across the Middle East, and it manifests itself in ways that would likely take Americans by surprise. While there are many ways people show it, perhaps the grandest expression of Middle Eastern hospitality is through food. If you're invited in by even a very poor family, they will spend all their money and take all their time to prepare the most labor-intensive food for you. What makes you feel welcome is what makes them feel proud. That's what we have. It's a meal to honor Jesus Christ in this culture where food is a, it's, it's fellowship, it's a gathering, it's a celebration. And Mary, and Maz, Mary Martha, and Lazarus are all in. In fact, th this would be, they're going public on Team Jesus. What we've encountered before in the Gospel of John, in fact, it was in John chapter 9, that if you aligned with Jesus, they kicked you out of the synagogue. There's something going on, sort of something like that, even in Israel today. If you um, are applying for citizenship, if you are a Jewish person with, with Jewish heritage and you want to emigrate into uh, the country of Israel, you fill out a form uh, obviously an application for citizenship. There's one question on that form that they play, pay close attention to. It's the question, 
is Jesus the Messiah? And if you say yes, that's an automatic rejection of your application for citizenship in the country of, of Israel. So kind of like that is going on here in the ancient world. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are saying, invite our family, invite the friends, invite the neighborhood. Let everybody know we love Jesus. We are with Jesus. Jesus matters to us. We are clearly on Team Jesus. Great occasion. But I found myself wondering why does Jesus accept this invitation? He didn't always accept invitations or, or announcements as to who he was. Very often we see him trying to quiet people down. Why is it at this point in time that Jesus wants to take the attention and put it all on him? We've seen this a little bit in the Gospel of John, but if we just stretch it out a, a bit and look at the uh, other Gospels. Here's, here's just a passage of Scripture that impacted me when I was a young Christian. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, just describing the early uh, life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now I'm going to get to the point in, in just a moment, but let me, let me just camp on this right, right here where it says very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left and he prayed alone. I remember reading that as a, as a young Christian and I thought to myself, you know, I could do that. And now for 45 years, it's been my habit. I don't do so well in the getting up early part but I do really well in the praying in the morning part. 45 years in, I can tell you this is totally worth it. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time listening to him as you read his word. Spend time talking to him as you pray. Okay, so he goes up and, and he prays and, and then his companions find him. Simon and his companions went to look for, him, for Jesus and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Well, Jesus had done some preaching and he'd done some healing. And people want to find him. They want more of what Jesus had to offer. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Isn't this, this is just counterintuitive to us. Hey, Jesus, you have the crowds with you. This is amazing. Momentum is being garnered. Let, let, let's run with this. And Jesus says, let's go. Let's leave. Let's leave the crowds. But back here in John chapter 12, there's this situation where Jesus raises a man who had been dead for four days. And yes, that is astounding, amazing. And the invitation is to come to a, a dinner party to be given in his honor where he will be the center of attention. I highly doubt that Jesus showed up that night and he thought it was going to all be, be all about Lazarus. Oh, you guys want to talk about me? Well, why did I even come? Not that at all. Jesus intentionally goes there. And I think one reason might be so that everyone will know what a good response to Jesus looks like. Again, mentioned in order, we've got uh, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. Martha's role, quite simply, is to provide 
attention to detail so that the evening can run without a hitch. She's in charge of the food, the arrangements, the whereabouts, everything. She's in charge of the meal. The role of Lazarus is sim simply be present and to point to the Savior. Tell a story. Mary's role is to bring a gift that is worthy of the Savior. Well, Martha's role is straightforward and expected. Somebody has to offer hospitality if there's to be an occasion. Boy, and isn't it such a gift that when, when you are invited to someone's home and you ask, what do we need to bring? And I, I, don't get me wrong, I love potlucks. We have a potluck in two weeks for the members of this church. We have uh, every other week in our house, we have a home group, we call it, and people bring food and it's just... It's, it, it, it's kind of a, a sense of anticipation. What are we going to eat tonight? And, you know, it's just nice to share. There's camaraderie in that. But isn't it such a gift when you can go to someone's house and they say, oh, don't, don't bother. You don't need to bring anything. Just, just come. Just bring yourself. And, and you realize that that evening, that hospitality, that, that meal, that occasion is not about the party. It's about you. It's just a gift. They want to enjoy your presence. They want you to come and be there. I will suggest that Jesus receives this attention because our greatest need is to delight in him. And this is an example for us. No human person, no earthly possession, no temporary joy can be the ultimate treasure that you seek and one that satisfies and gives you delight. That's Jesus. And only Jesus can do that for you. The role of Lazarus is overlooked, but it should be something that we all embrace. <clears throat> Lazarus used his life and his experience to speak of the gospel. Lazarus may have said things like, this was my life before I met Jesus. This was my life after I met Jesus. Here's what happened to me. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus has done in my life. We do that, or at least we're called to. One of the ways I direct a, a conversation toward spiritual things and toward the topic of, of Jesus Christ is, well, th this would come after taking the time to listen with sincerity to a person's story, and I really do want to hear a person's story and, and uh, how life is going with them. But after we exchange that and, and I do some listening, I, I like to try to transition the story or the, uh, I guess the topic of the story to do, direct it to me so that I can direct it to, to Jesus. I will say something like, you know, er, earlier I mentioned that I'm a pastor, but I haven't always been a pastor. In fact, I haven't always been a Christian. Here's what happened to me. And just go and see where we go with that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is a verse that you should be familiar with, that you want to be familiar with if you're not already. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that answer doesn't need to cover everything scientific. You, you will get some conversations where you're, you're in a, um, you finally get to the end of, of what your wits are about and you're just going to have to say, I don't know, but here's what Jesus did for me. And that's okay. You don't have to answer every question that's given to you. A good way to prepare, though, is to think about your story. What is it that God has done in your life? 
And in particular, what is it that God has done in your life recently? At some point, Lazarus must have reasoned with himself, you know, my, my story, my experience of being dead and then coming back from, from the dead is interesting, it's fascinating, but it doesn't say anything about Jesus unless I make it say something about Jesus. Can you imagine ty the type of questions he would have been get, getting? You know, some of them would be the oddball questions like, hey, when you woke up from the dead, were you hungry? I mean, like you hadn't eaten in days. Were you, were you hungry? Did you know, did you have light, were you lightheaded with a lack of blood sugar? Did that thing go on? But, but some of the, the questions might have been more serious like, what was it like to die? Was it like going to sleep where you just sort of, you could feel yourself fading off? Or was it like blowing a candle out and then whew, you were gone? And what was it like to be dead for four days and then you hear a voice and you know that voice is talking to you and you are, you are energized and you're emp empowered to actually obey that voice. Lazarus, come out! How could it be that you were dead for four days and you didn't rot? I mean, you could walk, you could eat, you could, you could talk. Tell us about that. All of that is fascinating. None of that speaks about Jesus unless you make it speak about Jesus. Somehow Lazarus knows. He's, he's prepared. Hey, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. As you have conversations with people, you might notice the easiest thing in the world to talk about is you. You're an expert on you. Become an expert on other people. Add to that. Be an expert talking about Jesus. There is no greater joy, no greater privilege than introducing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the story of Lazarus, as fascinating as it is, as fascinating as it was, only had value if he chose to link his story to Jesus. So let me give it to you this way, Christian, follower of Christ. I like to keep things very simple. Here's just a very simple phrase. Make much of Jesus. You can do that. Make much of Jesus. Then when you have a chance, when you have an opportunity, just introduce Jesus Christ. Relationship with God, what God has done for you lately. Okay, and then there's Mary. Still on verse two. Here we go. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those who uh, re was reclining at a table with him. Okay, now to recline doesn't mean to slouch at the table. It means uh, you're not sitting on a chair. You're basically sitting on the floor. There would have been some occasion with uh, blankets and pillows, uh, something soft. But you're laying down, probably have a head pro propped up, and, and you have one hand free uh, to access the food. So that means that the, the feet have the, uh, if, if you're visiting this, if you're approaching the table like Mary was, the feet are the most accessible. That's what I'm trying to say. And so she takes her uh, perfume and she pours it on the feet of Jesus. I just want to get out of your, your imagination that somehow she was underneath the table and, and trying to do some things. No, his feet are outward. His feet are, are at a point where they are the most accessible part of his body to Mary, and so she pours the perfume there. Judas points out it's, um, 
that it costs a year's wages in verse 5. We would be hard-pressed to thinking in terms of giving away a year's salary to a, mini, a ministry, no matter how effective that ministry was. That would be quite a challenge. But look at it this way. Suppose you had a loved one who found out that he or she was going to die. Husband, a wife, a mother, a father, son or a daughter, best friend ever, some, someone who, that you love. Found out, got a year to live. Pretty decent health for most of that year, then there's going to be a steep decline, and then done. And this person comes to you and says, all I want before now and then is I want to spend time with you. In fact, I, I want to go on the best vacation ever with you. Not to be lavish in terms of vacationing, but to spend time with you. And the travel will just add to the ambiance of enjoying each other. How much would you spend on that vacation? That's Mary. She loves Jesus. Jesus loves Mary. Jesus is going away, and they both seem to know that. The point of the passage is not that Mary was lavish. It's that she valued Jesus that much to be lavish. We read it as, well, that's highly sacrificial. Well, it wasn't much of a sacrifice to her because she paid that. Well, I, sh I should rephrase that. Yes, it was a sacrifice to her, but she was, it, was, it, was, it was a sacrifice that she was willing to pay. Mary gave a lavish gift. Judas goes in the opposite direction. He sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I played around with some numbers for a bit because I'm curious about numbers and money and how things work. If there are 300 working days in a year times 12 hours a day because that's how long you worked in the ancient world. Eight hours never came into a factor in the ancient world. Work 12-hour days. And if you multiply it, and trying to, trying to assess the value in, in, in our world today, if you multiply it by $16.28 because that's the minimum wage in the state of Washington, you come up with in excess of $50,000. If you take the 30 pieces of silver that, that Judas used to uh, trade for Jesus, you come up with less than $500. Now, you can fudge with those numbers for a little bit, and they, maybe they're a little bit off, but I think the, the, the comparison holds up. Mary gave a gift that was lavish, And Judas sold Jesus for cheap. Mary had assigned a high value to, to Jesus, whereas Mary, excuse me, whereas Judas had a very low value. Judas didn't care. I think the modern... Um, the modern equivalence to Judas in, in John chapter 12 is indifference. Just didn't care. A long time ago, I was at a Jews for Jesus event. And somewhere in there, the, uh, one of the missionaries with Jews for Jesus explained, you know, it, it's not like the Jews in Israel have studied the New Testament. 
And it's not like they've thought about it and prayed about it and reached a conclusion that Jesus was not a Messiah. They just don't care. By and large, they don't care. So when it comes time to assigning value to Jesus, it doesn't matter what the value is. Five, 10, 30 bucks, whatever. They just don't care. Contrast with Mary who assigned a high value to Jesus. Give me my year's salary. I'm going I'm to give it all to Jesus. I'm just going to pour it out there. Now, Judas will go from bad to worse, but we're still in John chapter 12. John 18 is coming, and Judas will go from bad to worse. But right, right now, he's in the presence of Jesus, and he could have asked questions. He could have reasoned from the scripture. He could have listened to the teaching. Evidently did none of that. He just didn't care. And finally, we have the religious leadership. Their response to Jesus is just plain evil. And nothing will convince them otherwise. I'm turning back to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, here's something that we've talked about before, but it's worth looking at again. Their mind is made up. Nothing will convince them that Jesus is somehow good. John chapter 7 Verse 25, going to pick it up in the middle of a story, but I think you'll, you'll be able to follow along. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? And here he is speak, uh, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ or the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know what he is from. Uh, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Their minds are made up long before John chapter 12, months before, maybe a year, year and a half before the events of John chapter 12. We can read in John chapter 7, their minds are, are, are made up. Jesus has to die. And what will follow John 7 is the miraculous healing, the, the, the giving of sight to a person born blind. Only God can do that. We looked at this. In John chapter 9, and they will see this. They will verify for themselves, yes, the man was blind. Yes, he can now see. Only logical conclusion, God has done a work, and still they will reject Jesus. And then we have the resurrection of Lazarus, a person dead for four days. The Jews honestly believed that a person's spirit hung around the grave for three days and then departed. Lazarus has been dead four days. He is dead. He is really dead. He's come to life. And what do they want to do? We read it earlier. They want to kill, they want to kill Lazarus. Let's turn back to John chapter 12, and we'll read that. John chapter 12, verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that, La that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Conclusion, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. 
For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. I think there's two very different reasons for the Jews to be fighting, fighting mad at Jesus. In, God, in John's gospel, there's this accusation that has been made by Jesus that seems to be recurring. You don't know God. And then at the same time, there's this claim that seems to be recurring. I'm sent from God, Jesus said. I'm the son of God. I've been sent here as Messiah, Savior. The accusation is offensive. The claim is blasphemous. So John chapter 12 is a chapter that, or I should say this section of, of John chapter 12 is written to both encourage us to respond to Jesus by placing high value on him, and also it's a sober warning to all people. Don't underestimate Jesus. Everyone who has ever heard of Jesus will assign a value to Jesus. Martha, Lazarus, and Mary give high value to Jesus. All very different responses. Did you notice that? Don't have to be the same. Don't have to be cookie cutter. You don't have to do what I do. Very different responses, all good, because they assign high value to Jesus. Judas, low value, and didn't care. Religious leadership, no value. We're better off if Jesus is dead, is what they think. In my life, I went from atheist to cult member to Christian. When I was an atheist, no value. Jesus had no value in my life. Didn't want to look into him, didn't have time for it. No value. When I was a member of a cult, Jesus had barely some value. I was told I could do it myself, and, and Jesus was okay, and you could have him too. But now that I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus has high value in my life. In fact, I have found that through the years, my estimation of Jesus and his value in my life increases. More and more value I ascribe to Jesus as the years go on. Your greatest need is to delight in Jesus. Here's what God the Father thinks of Jesus. And we'll end with this. Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be held on to. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there it is again. Death on a cross is a matter of obedience for Jesus, not accidental. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Jesus thinks, excuse me, that's what God thinks of Jesus. Now, what do you think of him? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And as, as, as much as we esteem him and value him, we have to admit there are moments in our lives when we don't. Perhaps we think we are smarter and we just try to tough it out, figure it out, go on ahead and do our own thing. Perhaps we're busy and we're just distracted and we just haven't given the attention to care what Jesus might think, say, or even feel about our choices. Perhaps we have intentionally pursued other things, some pursuits, some attainments, some people, some pleasures, and Jesus has taken a back seat somehow. Well, today we want to come clean. And we want to be released from those pursuits that take us away from Jesus and diminish his value in our thinking. So help us, dear God, to see Jesus as he truly is, high and exalted, Lord, Savior, King, beautiful one. Praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are this morning. And may your praise be ever on our lips. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing these things to us and for convicting us of wrongdoing and convincing us of things that we do well in the sight of God. Keep us on the path of following Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.